Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm very, very excited about the guests that we have today. We're going to be learning quite a bit and, uh, you know, going from consulting to hyper growth more on the growth side to then, you know, launching. So uh, you name it. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Alison Barr. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So originally born in Columbus, Ohio, you know, to a mom that was a nurse and then also a father that had a restaurant, a business. So how was how was life growing up? Tell us about your upbringings. For sure. It was awesome. I grew up right outside Columbus, Ohio in a town called Bexley. I went to public school all the way through. I I think through my parents and growing up, I really learned a lot about hard work. Um, my dad had a restaurant uh, that I spent a lot of uh, time and hours at working. And he also was a runner, a distance runner. So I, st- I run quite a bit today, but then he was both um, managing this business and then he would run a lot of half marathons and marathons. So he was sort of always on his feet doing something. And I really learned sort of the value of, of really, um, really hard work. So it was great. I mean, I'm sure because in hospitality, I mean, that's crazy hours. Yeah, it was crazy. It would start like, especially in the summer, we would go with him. He would go to Sam's Club or Costco, that equivalent, and get all the food for the restaurant. And we'd ride around on the cart and then he'd go to the restaurant and do a big lunch service. And then he wouldn't really come home until 10 o'clock after he shut it all down. So yeah, it was, it's sort of a, uh, always on thing and, um, you're, you're always on your feet doing something. So after seeing your dad, I mean, did you know, or did you have an idea that maybe, you know, you may want to follow his footsteps on having your own company in the future or not? It was never really my dream to have a company. I joke that I was in an accidental founder, um, because, when I was at Uber, I didn't really know what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I um, discovered venture capital, and I loved investing. I um, taught myself how to invest in the stock market and really just loved following companies um, and investing, and I bought Tesla stock like a long time ago and just had loved following the company and sort of loved reading about different products and sort of mapping out what that means over time on on the stock market, and then I discovered venture capital, and it was sort of I was able to apply what I learned in investing with what I learned while I was at Uber, building Uber. So I loved investing in early stage companies and trying to think through 
if you see a couple founders in a pitch deck, like how do you extrapolate and what are the patterns that it that you see when you create really, really large companies? So that thought exercise was really fun for me. But yeah, I ended up meeting Dom as a potential angel investor in his company. And it just so happened that I had built very similar products at Uber um, around what he wanted to build. So got it. we and we just got along really well and sort of aligned on what the future of the world could look like in a in a new world um, with better payments and identity and checkout and e-commerce technology. And yeah, that was sort of it. And I was able to apply it a lot of what I'd learned at Uber. So it was sort of a back rate in heaven. And we'll talk about that in, in just a little bit. But I guess in your case, like um, rewinding a little bit back to 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 kind of like your your walk through the, the walk here through memory lane, in your case, you wanted at first to become a doctor. Why? So school was always pretty easy for me. Um, and it was something I excelled at and was pretty good at. And sort of at the time I was Math and science were definitely my favorite things, especially math, but I sort of liked the sciences part of it as opposed to the more writing or creative side. And that's sort of what you did when I was growing up. It's like you'd get really good grades and then you'd go to school and like the highest performing academic people would um, go into medicine. And I also... I did a lot of music growing up, classical music, and um, I was really interested in. Initially, I wanted to be an ear, nose, throat doctor. It's sort of a type of surgeon, but um, yeah, it just I thought it was really interesting. But I got burnt out by school and study, and so I was able to discover other things that I was really passionate about. I mean, you did you did to a certain degree. I mean, you continued on the on the healthcare path because you went then into consulting, and you were consulting with uh, bigger corporations. And I'm sure that that was very helpful for you because I meet a lot of entrepreneurs that, that have had that consulting uh, experience where you really get to uh, understand how you, let's say, grab big problems, break them into small problems, and then you tackle one after the other. So I guess how would you say, you know, like the, the consulting experience shaped your way of thinking towards uh, challenges in front of you? Yeah, great question. I think through my career, I've been able to work at companies of different sizes. And I think that's been able to equip me with the right tools and frameworks and way of thinking about organizations as I'm building fast. So when I was working in consulting, I helped work at like really big health insurance companies. And you sort of learn what those operate like internally and how they're structured and what systems they have and sort of their ways of working. And then after that, I went to high growth tech, um, which was Uber. And it was still a pretty big company. It was over 2000 people when I joined and much bigger than that when I left. So it was much larger. And then from there, I was able to sort of go smaller, but without sort of the frameworks and understanding how bigger companies operate, I think it'd be more difficult for me to think through how fast should be structured in the shorter term and longer term, because I've seen it done different ways and can sort of take best practices that I've seen throughout my career and things that I like and didn't like and um, use that to try to create the best culture that we can. So in your case and, and in this journey that, that, that we're discussing, I mean, going from consulting and being with big corporations and traveling a lot to Connecticut, I mean, it's a big switch going from that to all of a sudden, you know, finding yourself in Silicon Valley. I mean, that's quite a jump. Can you tell us, you know, how that transition came about? Yeah. So when I was in consulting, I was in Chicago and I worked at PwC or PricewaterhouseCoopers for four years. I was sort of traveling all over to these consulting projects. And it was 
a bit old school in that you still showed up to the office on Fridays. I traveled Monday through Thursday and often leave on Sundays. We'd wear business casual every day and sort of go out all the time for these like different work dinners. But it was sort of a, yeah, a bit more old school. And I think finally after who knows how many years, maybe 10 years, I got rid of my all my business casual stuff I used to wear. But it just like wasn't fun. And I, my brother was two years younger and he was a self-taught front-end developer and he got a job after college in startups. So he was working with like a few people in Boston on these like cool ideas. And I'm just like, that sounds way more fun and entertaining than what I'm doing. Um, so I was like, I'm going to work at a startup. The problem I realized when I, I would research all these companies and apply for them is I was a consultant and there's it's kind of hard to get a job at startups when you're a consultant and you don't have technical experience. So I did more strategy and operation stuff, but I wasn't a coder. I didn't have these like super technical skills. So it was sort of hard to find the right fit. Um, but it just so happened at the time that Uber was growing really rapidly and they were hiring a lot of smart generalists to build up um, their operations team. So they would hire people from sort of all types of different backgrounds. But embed them in sort of a new environment. And for me, it was like really fun because it was very hands-on and scrappy in a way that consulting wasn't. And it was like very tangible. So when I started at Uber, we had about 100 employees in the Chicago office. My team helped manage operations for the entire Midwest region. But when I first started, I was in, we had these, there was the Uber office with employees. And then we had these driver support centers and you would have like thousands of drivers come in every single day to get help uploading their documents and answer questions about how much they got paid. And um, at the time when I first joined Uber, we didn't even have an Android app. So they all the drivers would come and rent these phones from Uber. So there was like this intense op, like it was like a DMV, but it was really intense operations. And when I first started, I was there, I think two days a week from 10am to 6pm. Um, helping drivers, uh, they would sit across the table from you and you'd help them nonstop the entire time. And it was like, so exhausting. And but it was also like very tangible, you like were helping these people earn money, because a lot of them had a difficult time getting a job or didn't have a lot of other options. So that's why um, they were there was to make money. So it was like fun to go to that environment where it was like, you really felt like you were making a difference and like that you were really impacting people's lives. And um, sometimes I don't know if that part of Uber's story got out as much, but we were really helping a lot of people. And yeah, then you just, I learned so many things about, it was like very intense operations behind the scenes. And, um, for the consumer, it's, it's all about making it as seem simple for the consumer, but there's like, there's a lot of things that have to go right for that, like magical experience to happen. So, um, yeah, it was incredible operations training and just sort of how to, to make any magical thing happened and it was just so fun we did all these like on-demand campaigns we did uber for kittens and this was, so we would like go around and like people could request kittens on demand in the uber app and like we did all these things that were just like so fun but through that i realized from mostly from my experience working directly with drivers and talking to thousands of them that payments was the most important part of this entire thing for them because if they didn't understand how much they got paid or if their payment was late, it was a really big deal. And a lot of them were living paycheck to paycheck and using it to support their family. So I just like saw how crucial that part of it was. Um, so I ended up moving to San Francisco to work for Uber's global team, um, working on payments and payment technology. 
So it was there that I really sort of went really deep on fintech and payments and how all of this backend payment infrastructure um, works all around the world to to make um, these incredible experiences. And I'm sure that you also learn how to deal with putting out fires because I mean, when the app, uh, you know, instant pay, you know, was going down, then you know, people were not happy about it. Yeah, I, I had lots of fires and, and fire drills. Uber had a has and had a really large payment operation business internally. Um, we were paying out drivers in 70 plus countries. And a lot of these countries too weren't really, their banks weren't structured to support this velocity of payments. There were multiple cases where we would pay to certain countries that are used to paying monthly. And then you'd suddenly send all these wire transactions or bank transfers that you wanted to pay weekly. And they just didn't have the infrastructure to support it. So sometimes payments were late. But yeah, I managed some outages where so the main product I worked on was called Instant Pay, where um, drivers can press a button and pay themselves um, 24-7 anytime after they've completed a trip. It sort of is a high-intensity in- high thing because before that, we just paid drivers once per week. So it was a really big change, and it was a very popular product, and most drivers used it. Um, but yeah, on, on occasion, either something would happen with our bank or the order processing platform for Uber, and there may be some delays in when the drivers could get their money in. They were never very happy about that. And there, I think there were at least a couple outages that lasted more than a day where they would call up the newspapers and tell them that Uber wasn't paying them, which wasn't true. But I think it sort of shows you how important these products are to people and um, are like huge responsibility to make sure that they're they're working and available. So you were uh, mentioning earlier that uh, you met Dom as a result of your angel investments. So after Uber, when you gave your notice to Uber, I mean, you were really uh, excited about the opportunity of maybe becoming part of a venture firm, but uh, that ended up not uh, panning out. Uh, so you decided to do it yourself and you created your own angel investment operation. And that's how you actually came across uh, Dom. But before we actually go into talking about that moment where the two of you connected, what can you tell us about what you've learned about, you know, perhaps, you know, pattern recognition on the founders that you felt had the most potential and that have gone out to perhaps do big companies from maybe the ones that, you know, didn't have what it required to build something, you know, meaningful? Yeah, great question. I think hindsight's always twenty twenty, but for me it's it's all about the people. So I think both like starting a company and investing, it's one you have to have a really big idea. So at least, especially now, a lot of times I'll talk to founders and sort of level set. I'm like, investors are out there trying to find the next $10 billion companies. So you better be able to pitch a vision that you think is going to be really big and convince them that you are the person who can run this massive company or be part of this massive company, because that's sort of like the goal of venture capital. And I think Sometimes people lose sight of that when they're first starting out. That's like, oh, I just want to raise this money and like play around with this idea, which is okay. But it's like, that's what, that's the lens that investors um, need to look at these ideas for. And I think sometimes that can be lost a, a little bit in sort of how we're thinking about early stage capital. But so that's one, like have a really big idea. And is this something that you think can be worth $10 billion or more? And if so, how will you get there both in like the shorter term and the longer term? Um, and the second is all about people. So 
being a founder is a lot of times a sales job and you have to convince employees to join you to build the company. You have to convince investors to give you money. You have to convince customers to partner with you. So it's talking so much about um, the why all the time. So you have to be really passionate about what you're building because you will talk about it a lot. So if you're not passionate, it's not going to be very fun for you. And going back to, I think, what you look for in founders, it's like, you need to find someone who's like really passionate about what they're building and is in it for the long run, like, and not just like a year. This is like a multi-year thing. And as I said, you like live and breathe this thing. <laughs> it's, uh, it's like a part of you. So you need to find people who are just like so passionate about their idea that they can't do something else because if they're not that passionate, they're going to get bored and sort of give up and do something else. Um, so I, it's like, you can sort of like feel that passion or feel that energy a lot of times when you're talking to people. And I think there's like some cases where people say, oh, I want to build a business and then sort of academically figure out what to focus on and then build it. And like, there's examples of that happening. But I think, um, I think a lot of times the, the other cases it's, yeah, it's, it's about telling the story. And that's sort of what I look for as well. It's like, why this person and why this idea and um, can this person like really build something um, meaningful that that keeps you on the test of time. Yeah. So talking about the story, Alison, what was the story of Dom and you, you know, coming together? How did that happen? Um, yeah. So I met Dom about two and a half years ago. I was still at Uber at the time and I had started angel investing and networking with a lot of investors. And um, I really thought that my path would go into venture capital um, and do this really early stage investing that I just talked about. Um, I really loved meeting potential founders with like this huge idea and like just a pitch deck and people that wanted to take on the world. And it was so fun to hear all these different ideas that people have. But so yeah, I invested in several companies over the first six months. Actually, I just had my first company that went from seed stage to unicorn uh, this week called Azuzu, which is pretty fun nice. black owned as well which there's like no, there's not enough black owned unicorns but um i'm glad to yeah. be a backer of one of them but yeah so i started angel investing and i met dom he had come from australia and he had a prototype for a passwordless login company and he wanted to build checkout and it was called fast and i had actually when i was looking to get into venture capital i wrote an investment thesis called frictionless finance which is based on my experience at Uber, but it was all the different ways I thought you can remove friction in payment flows to add business value. And this was, uh, I think, 2017. This was when crypto had first gone, Bitcoin had gone up to 20 grand and then had sort of gone back down. And when no one was really talking about fintech, which is like really funny now because like half of investment is in fintech or something. But at yeah. the time, everyone was focused on other things and SaaS and all these other things. And I said I wanted to invest in fintech, which most people like didn't even consider much of a category then. But anyway, so I had this three-page investment thesis. And the first part was about uh, reducing friction at checkout. And I had different ideas. Or I uh, looked up different companies. And I had some other ideas too around like identity. But um, yeah, I had data around why checkout was such a huge opportunity and the opportunity you can have in the space. And I met Dom and he was basically building my investment thesis in real life. So um, he wanted to build sort of exactly what I had thought and researched about. So yeah, I, I introed him to Index Ventures who ended up leading the, the seed round. And then um, Dom came back and convinced me to join. And 
I did because we just like got along really well and sort of saw a very similar vision of the world and how big this opportunity could be. And we had very complementary backgrounds. He was more of a, he he was technical, but he'd also worked in like sales and more go to market stuff in in Australia at at other companies. And um, I had a more like fintech or payments focused background in network in um, the Bay Area. So, um, and it had built similar product at Uber. So, yeah. So in terms of the business model for fast for the people that are not right now like following, you know, the conversation, how does how do you guys make money? What's what's the business model? Uh Fast is a one-click checkout company um and we're really here to reduce friction um and make it easier for people to buy things online. And with that, on product pages that you see or on the cart page, there's a fast checkout button. It's a black button and you click on it and it's first time you use it, it's an optimized checkout form where you enter your information um, and then you're stored in our network. Um, and then if you use fast again, it's really one click. So you can go to products or on the cart page where you see fast again and we remember who you are. You don't have to create an account. You don't have to uh, log in and re-enter your information over and over again. So it's a really seamless user experience. And what that does for businesses is it's a growth mechanism and it helps increase their sales. Um, so it increases conversion and people's likelihood to buy things. And in that case, I mean, you guys have also raised um, you know, a, a good amount of money. I mean, how much money have you guys raised to date? Yeah, we've raised about um, $125 million over three different rounds. So um, our last was a $100 million Series B. And obviously, great people. Index, Kleiner, uh, I mean, great, great investors. How how was the process of uh, of raising the money from going to C to perhaps the Series B, that is the last financing cycle that you guys did? I mean, raising capital is a big responsibility. And with that, it's really about executing on the vision that you set out when you raise the money. So yeah, for us, it was you you raised the first round on vision and then you really we really assembled um the team over the next year to to build the infrastructure of the product and fast isn't just payments but payments is part of it it's very much um we're really at the intersection of e-commerce and payments and identity and different things so um compared to companies like Adyen or Braintree or others that are just payment processors we we also manage the consumer component of it so there's a lot of parts that need to fit together to make this frictionless experience. So yeah, the first um, year was about building the team and launching our initial version of the product. And then once we got the initial product live and, and working, then we use that traction and execution to, to raise our next round. And uh, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable because you are originally from Columbus, Ohio. Dom is from Australia. How did you both go about building the, the relationship with those investors, because there's a lot of people probably that are right now listening or watching and, and they're like, oh, my God, I'm outside of the U.S. and I'm planning to go to the U.S. and I'm wondering how Allison and Don did it. <laughs> yeah, it was a, a lot of hustle. Well, when I was still at Uber, I would meet with a lot of investors because I wanted to work at a venture fund. So I would reach out to them on um I was active on Twitter at the time and sort of meet them that way. And I also like followed a lot of people because I was like trying to learn a lot about venture capital. So I would follow investors to to learn how they think. And I would um, ask them to get coffee. And a lot of investors would say yes, because I had an interesting background at Uber that they were like curious about. But it was also this magical time in Silicon Valley that I don't, maybe it's happening in Miami again, or it'll come back. But like, you would just meet up with people all the time to get coffee and like get to know them. And it was 
sort of really fun to build a network that way and just have like super interesting conversations with all sorts of interesting people. And then like later on, I'd go to dinners and just like network with a lot of people. And it didn't like feel like networking because it was always about talking about interesting things. And like, especially founders, it's like everyone has an interesting story. And it's like, you're never bored because it's someone's building something impactful and, and meaningful. So it was it was really fun. So yeah, it's like, I feel like so much of not all the fundraising today, but Zoom can be a bit more transactional, I think, and that organic part of San Francisco. Yeah. Like at the time, that that was like this organic, magical thing, and you just like run into people all the time, and it was really fun. So, um, hopefully that that comes back eventually or that magic. But yeah, it was a special time in the Bay Area and met a lot of interesting people. So yeah, when I joined Fast, I was able to reach out to a lot of those people and connect with them again because they already knew me and I'd already been talking about payments in fintech for who knows how long so it's i was (laughs) self always focused on sort of the same areas yeah relationship building that's for sure so i guess uh, let me ask you this um for the people that are listening to get a sense of the maybe the size of fast today i mean anything that you can share maybe like number of employees or anything that you feel comfortable sharing yeah we're about 400 people um now so um yeah pretty large Wow. So what about the culture? How do you guys go about culture so that, you know, you're able to grow so fast and you're not breaking things when it comes to culture? Yeah, great question. Very deliberately, I think we were sort of at a turning point when COVID hit right when we were starting to hire and build out our team. So we have a great office in San Francisco that we still have and and people will go to, but it's much more of sort of a co-working space now and we don't force people to go into the office. But yeah, when we shift to global or when COVID hit, we just sort of immediately started hiring um, other places as well. And we just had to be a lot more intentional about how we were building the company culture. I think part of that is through recruiting and making sure that people you hire are like a good fit for the company. What was interesting to me as COVID sort of like kept going on and on, <laughs> not ending was people would meet up um, in cities all over the US or even globally, um, just because they enjoyed hanging out with each other and meeting other people from fast. So I think that was a good indication for me that we were hiring great people that they just like wanted to hang out because they had similarities and enjoyed talking to each other. I do a weekly all hands with the whole company that I help plan and structure. And I think that's like the one hour of the week that we're sort of all in the same place, even though it's virtual. And I think that's a really good time to sort of iterate what's important to the company and really celebrate um, what we've been able to build and also sort of look forward um, to things things ahead and make sure everyone's aligned and sort of like moving in the right direction. Nice. So imagine, Alison, that you go to, you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world five years later where let's say the vision of FAST is fully realized. What does that world look like? I'd love for fast to be the default way that you pay for things online where it's like, you don't really think about it, but everything is just done through fast. And it's like so simple and seamless that you don't really have to think about it. Um, And then we also have a consumer dashboard as well. That's sort of basic at the time, but over time we can add additional features, but we think of it as like in some way fast is like the buy now button on Amazon where there's like the buy now button and then there's add to cart and it's really like frictionless checkout. And then, um, on Amazon, you can also see all of your purchases and orders and things like that. And we also think about post-purchase experience a lot. Um, and how can we make it as easy for you to one do business with sellers? So how can you, how can we make it really easy for you to buy things? But then 
post-purchase, how can you have an amazing experience with the company if you have an issue or a problem or return or um, you want to save something to a wish list or there's sort of a lot of different ways it could go. But um, we think we have a buyer dashboard now that's similar to, to Amazon as well, where you could track your deliveries right now. And over time, we, we can think of other features that you can add on top of that. So yeah, it's it's all about reducing friction and making it as easy as possible to buy things. We've also done a lot of really cool um, omni-channel experiences, especially in sports, where you can go to a sports game and scan a code and purchase like a special item of the game that's just there. And then um, it'll be delivered to your house after and you don't have to, you don't have to wait in some long line to, to pick it up. So I think it's, it's all about how can you create better, better experiences. Um, and that new age of commerce, that's really omni-channel. Yeah, absolutely. Now, imagine, I mean, there's a question that I typically ask the guests that come on the show. And that is, imagine I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time, you know, and we're talking about now, let's say, you know, the, that moment where you guys were sitting down and thinking about the future, you know, that was back in, let's say November, 2019, where you and Dom were like thinking about like what, what was possible now it's fast. Imagine you had the opportunity of going back to that moment, maybe to one of those discussions where you had the two of you, the two younger selves, you know, you and, and Dom right there, you know, in front of you, and you were able to give them one piece of business advice before moving forward with the company. What would that be and why, given what you know? I tell people this a lot and I don't think it really would have changed how we were thinking about building the company. But to me, it's all about relationships and all about people. So like you really can't forget that no matter what stage of the company or trajectory you're in, because it's, I think great people build great products and they also build great companies. So it's like, no matter what stage you're at, like thinking very carefully and putting so much emphasis on the people that you really have um, with you and around you. And I think, yeah, I don't really think we would have done anything differently as we were building the company. It's like a lot of it's just like steps you go through. And um, it's all about just getting a little bit better every day and like continuing to make progress towards that bigger vision and like making sure that you understand what that longer term vision is and aligning people around that. But um, yeah, it's it's not like one thing I would do differently. Amazing. So for the people that are listening, Alison, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? You can follow me on Twitter at Abar Allen. That's probably my most active social channel. Amazing. Well, Alison, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Great. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember, that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.